I'll think about it. Tomorrow morning, I'll come over with something. I got one more shot at this, so. <laughs> okay, well, tonight, uh, to maybe just recap a little bit where we've been. Uh, we're kind of trying to consider the book of Psalms as a whole. And obviously, we can't look at every single psalm, there are 150 of them, but we're kind of looking at the forest, uh, looking for the forest rather than the trees. Uh, and when we think about the forest, for me, the most helpful way to think about that has been this paradigm of uh, this place of easy orientation. Uh, you get knocked off your axis uh, in a moment of disorientation. You feel dislocated in life. Uh, but then in that place of disorientation, uh, you meet God in a surprising way. Um, and that this reorientation is not just a return back to the old orientation. Uh, this reorientation has the quality of a gift. So it's a surprise. Uh, there's a newness to the orientation. It's, an or, it's a reorientation that you could not have necessarily guessed or figured out or concluded on your own uh, in that moment of disorientation. So that's what we're looking at. Uh, so from orientation to disorientation uh, to reorientation. Uh, the paradigm that I kind of offered towards the end of that talk this morning was it's this paradigm of life, death, and resurrection. So we know that resurrection is not just a return back to life as you knew it. Resurrection is a new order of life. Uh, it's an entirely new thing that God does uh, in our midst. And so that's kind of where we are today. We're uh, kind of diving, I guess, into the pit a little bit. So we're kind of sitting in that place of disorientation. And I think for some of you who may be, you know, I was talking with a brother and he was saying, I'm not quite sure I'm connecting or fully understanding uh, what, you're, what you mean by this disorientation or how I'm supposed to experience it in my own life. And that's okay. You know, I think God is doing different things for all of us in different ways. Uh, but maybe if that's where you are, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not quite sure about this disorientation piece. Maybe the best takeaway for you is just to walk away and say, if that happens... I don't need to be surprised by it. If that happens, when that happens, maybe. Um, I don't need to be scared of it. Because we see it in the life of the Psalms and we see it in the lives of so many people, so many pilgrims and saints who have gone before us in that. So let's look a little bit at this notion of uh, disorientation. And the way that I want to do is I'm just going to start this evening just share a little bit about, of my story. And I'll try to do it quickly. I don't want to make this into like a massive counseling session for me. Uh, but at the same time, just to share a little bit about where I'm coming from, trusting that in the midst of that, uh, you'll get maybe a, t a sense of what I mean by disorientation and the kind of disorientation we actually do see uh, in the Psalms, particularly in Psalm 88. So I'll start there to share a little bit of my story, and then we'll look at Psalm 88 uh, and the way that it functions as the psalm of disorientation. It's like a song you sing in the dark, uh, Psalm 88. And then lastly, I want to talk about how you can bump into Jesus in the dark. And that's kind of what happened with me. Okay, so we'll talk about my journey into the dark. I'll talk about singing in the dark, and then lastly, uh, hopefully we bump into Jesus in the dark together today, okay? Uh, so my journey in the dark, so <clears throat> I'm just going to go back to what was probably, um, in retrospect, one of the uh, most defining moments of my life, and that was when I was uh, 21 years old, a junior in college, 
uh, my father passed away uh, rather rapidly. He was uh, he had sick. He was he had a kidney transplant when we were younger. He ended up dying of liver cancer. But we went from going my mom calling me while I was in at university at college saying, "Hey, your dad's having stomach problems. Might be ulcers. We're just going to go take him to the doctor. We'll see." To a month later, I was helping to plan the funeral. Uh, so 21 years old, uh, and it just kind of was one of those things that just blindsided me. Uh, and what I realize now. And this, it'll be 20 years uh, this November, so this Thanksgiving, it was around Thanksgiving time when he passed. Uh, 20 years later, 20 years, almost half of my life later, I only now am beginning to understand just how deep that wound really was for me and how I had never actually really dealt with it. So I remember hearing a pastor say this, which utterly terrified me but kind of opened some doors for me. He said, uh, buried emotions don't die. They just get buried alive. Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying because if Korean men are good at anything, <laughs> anything, it's burying our emotions. But that rang true where I was looking at 20 years later. I'm like, I'd never even dealt with this. But what I realized what happened then when my father passed away, and then my mother was so just crushed with grief. So, you know, they're kind of a classic immigrant story, but she came here not knowing any of the language. My father came here to get a PhD. And so she's halfway across the world from any of her family, and her whole life is this family. And, you know, her fa my father, her husband, was kind of the center of that entire world. So my mother was crushed with grief. Uh, and I suddenly found myself, again, now in retrospect, realizing that I suddenly had to become the parent. Uh, because I'm the oldest son in this Asian family, uh, that my mom saw me as a source of strength, that if there's somebody could, who could hold this family together, it would be you. And not to any fault of her own, right? She's dealing with her own stuff, but the way that that kind of did a number on me, and I'm only just beginning to unpack what that actually means, but what I realized was when, with the death of my father at the age of 21, I suddenly felt completely lost in the world. So my whole family, uh, my, only my immediate family immigrated to the States. The rest of my family is back in Korea, and I've only met them once. And so when my father passed away, it was like, I don't know where I, do I have a place in this world anymore? Uh, do, where do I belong? And suddenly it felt lost and ultimately alone in the world. And not only alone, but suddenly responsible for my mother. I had an older sister and I had a younger brother who was still in high school. And so it felt completely lost in the world, but, and, and so wasn't, even sure what I was feeling, kind of holding it together for the first year. All I did was insurance and funeral arrangements and all these, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. You just keep yourself busy because it's easier to be busy and solve problems than to, than, than to look at the, the, the darkness within. And so I did that for a year, uh, and the years went by. I went to seminary, and what I realized I was doing is in the midst of feeling completely lost in the world, didn't know where my place was, the one thing I knew I could do was achieve. This was my entire life doing. Achieve. And I always joke with people that in an immigrant family, the answer to any problem, any problem, is work harder. <laughs> any problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> any problem is work harder. And that's what I knew, and I knew I could do it. And so I spent the next 20 years of my life, again, I had no idea I was doing this, next 20 years of my life achieving. And so I threw myself into ministry because I didn't want to achieve for worldly things. I wanted to achieve for Jesus. 
And so I threw myself into ministry for the next 20 years because I think implicitly I thought if I could just save lots of souls, then I would know that I do have a place in this world. Again, all the stuff I never, ever would have been able to articulate, but I look back on it now, 20 years of ministry, and that really at some level, I mean, the Spirit was working, there's good stuff, I'm not saying I was completely driven, but, but that was an engine in the midst of that. So I remember watching the movie Birdman uh, with uh, Michael Keaton, <clears throat> and the movie itself was great, but uh, the opening um, kind of slide before the movie start grabbed me by the lapels and kind of smacked me a couple of times across the face. And it was a quote from this uh, a poet named Raymond Carver. And the, the opening slide said something like, and what did you want from this life? And the answer to that question was to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved in this world. And boy, I, I, the next 30 minutes of the movie, I have no idea what happened because I was just reeling with that, oh my gosh, this poet has ripped open my soul and it's like I'm bleeding all over the place. I have no idea. To call myself, to feel myself beloved in this world. So in the seminary, this is where Duke and I were both probably functioning at an unsustainable pace <laughs> back in those 70s. <laughs> we would both be up at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., working on sermons, right, writing those last, anyways. So just living at this unsustainable pace, not realizing I was driven by this need to know that I belong somewhere in the world, kind of mistake, we have Duke and I were talking about mistaking adrenaline for the Holy Spirit. Like that's what I was doing for t decades. Uh, then we moved to New York City, and um, you know, you come in. I've never really lived in a big city. I came from Boston, moved to New York City, uh, coming in church into a church like Redeemer. And again, unbeknownst to myself, here was a place I said, if I could make it here, I could make it anywhere. And so, for the next uh, five years, was just ratcheting up the adrenaline in my life. And then all the while, you know, we have four kids. We all we just kept on having babies along the way, right? <laughs> uh, I told somebody earlier, but Jim Gaffigan has this joke where it says, what is it like to have four kids? He's got five kids now, but four kids in New York City. And his answer is, um, imagine that you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what it feels like. That is exactly what it feels like. Uh, but we're in New York City. And we're having babies along the way. Um, and inside, there's still this drive. And so for the first three years, I'm working, I don't know how many hours, just to, just to prove myself at some level. Uh, and then at some point about, I guess it was maybe three or four years in, um, I started to hit what was a breaking point for me. But I didn't realize that that's what it was. And for me, it's a lot of these things kind of uh, added up. But for me, what, the breaking point was essentially the pastoral caseload that I was trying to bear. Right? So this goes back to if I, can, if I can prove that I have a place in this world, if I can help other people hold their lives together, uh, then maybe I know that I've got a place here. 
And so the pastoral caseload that I was having, because I was an assistant pastor, so my primary role was essentially forms of crisis counseling or something like that. So I was, in the, I was smack dab in the middle of two divorces, so possibly being subpoenaed at divorce court in these two uh, divorce situations in my church. I had walked two people through uh, recent suicide attempts. There was a woman that, who I met at the mental ward at one of the hospital psych wards at one of the hospitals, uh, and just sat with her for an hour or two. Uh, I was in the middle of a domestic violence intervention, so I had to sat, sit, in a man, sit on a man's stoop, waiting for him to come home from work to inform him that his wife and infant daughter no longer live with him because we weren't going to wait for her to get hit before we did something. Uh, I was working with a new Christian, who, someone who had just become a Christian, had premature twins, so I visited them in the hospital, and these twins literally could fit just beyond my wrist. I mean, very, very premature twins. The twins made it, but then his wife died of cancer within the next year. And I'm in the middle of all those things and utterly unaware of the toll that it's having on me, because after all, I'm not the one suffering, right? right? That's the issue, right? I'm not the one going through the divorce, I'm not the one uh, uh, finding out that my wife and daughter are no longer. I'm not the one who's bearing the mother of my children. And so in the midst of all of that, I just didn't give my permission, myself permission to recognize and acknowledge the ways these things were crushing me. And all of it was driven by that motor, not unbeknownst to myself. And I was also telling myself, pastors don't feel like this. This is not how pastors are supposed to feel. We enter into, this is, and so this is what I was working through. Was I would, so the cracks were showing, uh, and I was just going back to the just work harder, just work harder. And I, I was at a point where, you know, anything that came across my way, I felt a personal kind of moral and spiritual responsibility to hold it together. Again, not realizing it's because, oh, there was a time when what you needed was a parent, but your parent couldn't be a parent. I don't blame her. Your parent couldn't be a parent to you. And you had to hold it together. And this has been your MO in every situation ever since. And so uh, I started to see the cracks in my life, uh, basically at an elders retreat that we had. And we had a speaker uh, who was a pastor. And his story is pretty, um, pretty public. <clears throat> but uh, this essence of his story was uh, he... he ultimately ended up getting addicted to prescription pain medicines as a pastor just because of all the pressures of ministry and that sort of thing. And I still remember he, in that retreat, was sharing how he remembers the exact moment when he first used a prescribed medicine for purposes other than for which it was prescribed. And it ultimately led him to, like, stealing. It ultimately led him to lying. He ended up, you know, all these kinds of things just to keep this um, addiction going. And I remember hearing that story, and it was just this wake-up call because I told myself, Lord, if I had something in my medicine cabinet that I knew would get me through this next Sunday, no doubt in my mind I would have taken it. And so it was this wake-up call to say, Abe, something's not right. Something is not right. And so I started talking about it with folks in my church, and gratefully, um, you know, the, uh, the staff of the church and my bosses and that sort of thing were really, really gracious, and, you know, the response was great, which is 
kind of terrifying to me. You just don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, and so ultimately, we were able to string together some vacation time and that sort of thing. thought, boy, you know what? I just need some time away. So I strung together all my vacation, all my sick days, all my personal days, stacked it all up in one summer, uh, hoping that it would be better. But at the end of that summer, uh, it was worse. Like basically, the bottom of the adrenaline had dropped out. Where you just stop achieving, you stop go, go, going, and then you stop, and all of a sudden, the bottom just completely falls out. So coming out of that summer, I was like, oh, Lord, I don't know. And uh, by the end of that summer, I was uh, 100% ready to leave the ministry. It was just too much for me. And uh, I still remember wrestling through that, and I look back on that, and I say, if I had any other marketable skill... Any other, any other marketable skill, uh, I would absolutely have gone into that in, in a heartbeat. Uh, but maybe by the grace of God, I had no other marketable skill. <laughs> and so I went into that fall really limping. And, you know, a text that I was going to kind of uh, uh, use during this retreat was, is a story of Jacob wrestling with God. And what I love about that is that Jacob is a schemer. I talk about orientation. He knows how the world works. Uh, he knows how to he knows how to make the world work for him. Uh, finds himself utterly alone, in the dark, facing a crisis. His brother that he doesn't know how to scheme his way out of, and he finds himself wrestling all night with God, and he walks away from that encounter changed, but limping. And this, to me, became the story. I said, Lord, is this what you're doing? And so by the end of that, uh, by going into that fall, I was like, Abe, your job is just, you just got to get by. You just have to do enough just to get by. You got to buy some time. I don't know what God is doing. Uh, <clears throat> that um, November was the birth of my fourth child, uh, who was God's idea, not ours, which uh, <laughs> makes him great. Uh, and his name is Judah, which, by the way, means gift of God. Which, uh, so Ju- Judah is praise. His middle name is Nathaniel, which is gift of God. Um, and so I will always remember when this happened because it was right around the time of his birth. So he was born, so I took all the paternity I leave I could. I took, like, partial paid leave. I took everything they could, stacked up again a bunch of time. Uh, and that, some, that, that winter leading up to November into Thanksgiving and into Advent, I think it was really the bottom of the pit for me. And so I still remember there was a Saturday. My wife, you know, she's, we've got the three other kids. She's pregnant, just had, gave birth to another one. And she's watching me just kind of sink into the sinkhole, uh, trying to do what she can to be helpful, trying to hold other things together. And so I still remember there was a Saturday where she's like, you know what? It seems like you just need some time on your own, maybe to pray or whatever. I'm just going to take the kids out. And it was a Saturday. And I remember it was like the most brilliantly sunny Saturday I, could rem- I can remember. And so I was like, okay, that sounds good. So she takes the kids out, and I'm sitting alone Saturday uh, in the room in this beautifully lit day and just bursting into tears for absolutely no reason, like utterly confused, saying, what is happening? Like, where is this coming from? There wasn't anything that happened that day. That day was a great day. It was a great day. And just bursting into tears, not having any language to begin to make sense of it. And then I remember trying to sit down to pray, and for the first time in my life, there were no words. I, I don't know how else to explain it. I sat down to pray, and I couldn't even say, Lord, help me. I couldn't, and I sat down, and I just sat down in kind of numb silence uh, 
with nothing to say. Uh, and then I opened up the Psalms. And for the first time, I don't know, I've read the Psalms several times before. And you know these Psalms are in there. But for the first time, I opened up the Psalms. And suddenly the places where the psalmist would say, uh, you, you put me in the miry pit. Suddenly those words came alive. And I suddenly realized there are words here for me to pray when I don't have my own words. Uh, there are those psalms where it says, um, you've you placed me in utter darkness, right? I have no place to uh, set my feet, right? All these psalms that before I would just kind of zip by saying, oh, this guy sounds like he's kind of having a hard time. Now suddenly, like, these were the parts of the psalms that I clung to. It wasn't the, okay, let's get through this kind of depressing stuff to get to the good stuff at the end. It was, this is the stuff that I began uh, to cling to. And so I said, okay, Lord, maybe the psalms can be a road map, and this is where a lot of these reflections grew out of, and I've been kind of uh, continuing to reflect on it. Uh, and we were entering into the season of Advent, and I don't know why, maybe this is just a corny part of me, but I thought, okay, Lord, Advent is about waiting in darkness. Right? That's what Advent is. So, okay, Lord, maybe it's Advent and you're asking me to just wait in the darkness. But on Christmas Day, you sent Jesus. So maybe, Lord, maybe, Lord, you're going to meet me. Uh, Advent came and went. Uh, I remember going to a candlelight service uh, at um, an Episcopal church in New York City, beautiful candlelight service, and just singing like Old Little Town of Bethlehem, and like tears just rolling down my face, right? Just could not hold it together, no matter where, I just could not hold it And Christmas came and went, and nothing. And so I just said, I, I don't know, and I guess I just need to keep sitting in this pit, in this darkness. And uh, in one of my times of prayer, like one of the thoughts that came to mind or an imagery that was really helpful for me in that time of prayer was I kind of envisioned myself, you know, on outside of this cave or this grave, and it's a bright day, and this is life. So we go back to orientation, disorientation, reorientation, life, death, resurrection, life. So I'm outside, it's green grass, it's blue sky, it's sun, sun is shining, and there is a tomb there of darkness that Jesus has asked me to walk into. And so as I'm praying, I'm like, okay. So what I do in that, as I think about this, is I tie a rope to my waist, and I tie it to a tree, and I walk into the darkness. And I walk deeper and deeper into the darkness, and then the rope pulls taut. And I remember that after that Christmas, just sitting there, remember, thinking to myself, okay, Abe, this is the moment. You could either turn back and follow the rope back to whatever this thing called life was before, or you can untie the rope and keep walking and trust that Jesus is going to meet you. From a spiritual perspective, that was one of the most terrifying moments of my entire life. And so when I talk about this disorientation, this was my experience of it. Again, all the, all the tricks in my pastoral bag that I've used on others, I used on myself, all the things that I tell people that usually work, nothing. 
And it was that moment to say, Abe, what are you going to do? Are you going to walk back? To go back and try to forget all these things and go back to that place of orientation? Are you going to untie the rope? And are you going to walk deeper, trusting that Jesus will meet you? And I still remember for the first time I said, I got to let go of that. And I remember in my mind and in my heart and my prayers, untying that and saying, Lord, I'm taking this next step, but I'm completely lost. I have no idea which way is up. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, where I'm supposed to be going, but I think you're asking me to do this. Um, and that's what I did. Um, and the next several months is, to me, is still kind of a big blur. It's this blur of emotion. Like, I still remember, like, trying to get out of bed, and it was just a Herculean effort to just pull my... To tear myself out of bed every morning. Uh, I just remember everywhere I walked around just felt like this heavy, wet blanket everywhere. Uh, and just kind of the aching numbness that was at the heart of everything that I did. So I started to see a counselor. Uh, and in part of that uh, counseling, I was diagnosed with a depression and placed on meds. And then that enabled me just to, the way I described it was before, I felt like every step I took, the, the ground was sinking underneath my feet. And so I was walking in the swamp and the sludge was up to my waist and I was just trying to pull myself through. Uh, but when I got put on these meds, it finally felt like the ground was still soft, but at least it was holding my weight. And so I could walk and uh, met with a counselor for several months. Uh, was kind of working through all these things. And even today, I'm still on those meds. Uh, I actually recently, um, the doctor had to double those meds. So when I say that this is a thing in my past, it was, but it's not. You know, I, I still limp in a lot of ways. Even when I look at my ministry today, uh, you know, Duke was saying how I don't often speak at things like this because I just don't have that capacity. And I just have to acknowledge that about myself. So someone whose identity was an achieve, 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 I have to say, Lord, I just, don't, I, I just can't do it. Lots of other pastors, they could do it. I can't. And that's okay. You still love me. Uh, my limitations are your gifts to me. Um, and so still walking in that, just had those depression meds doubled just because things have been kind of tough in different ways in, in my ministry context. Uh, and still going through counseling and even stepping into the role that I have now. You know, I'm the senior pastor of one of the Redeemer churches on the east side. Uh, I went into that with absolute fear and trembling. And I said, Lord, I cannot, I cannot do this job. But if you're asking me to do it, I'm going to do it. But you've got to make it clear because I have nothing in me. Uh, and I'm not going to go into that story because we'll be here all night. But uh, he made it clear, 11th hour, two days before I had to make the decision whether to take the job or not. The Lord made it clear. He just showed up. And I called my wife and I said, hey, this is what just happened. And she was like, you did ask him to make it clear. <laughs> I'm like, I did. Uh, and so even today as I minister, every day I'm very aware of this thing. Uh, it kind of feels like a monster under the bed, and it's always there, and you don't know when it's going to jump out and grab an ankle or something like that. Uh, but I'm constantly aware of it, constantly paying attention uh, to it. But it was in the midst of that that Psalms like Psalm 88, like I said, 
suddenly not only gave me language for prayer, Psalms like Psalm 88 gave me permission to be utterly and completely disoriented. Psalms is an interesting book of the Bible, isn't it? Because on the one hand, they are people's prayers and songs of praise to God. But at the very same time, they are, it's God's own word to us as his people. And so as I read these psalms, I not only felt a communion with these saints who had gone before me who could pen these words that so perfectly put words to my experience. Not only did I feel a fellowship of the saints, as it were, with the writers of these psalms, I felt God in his word giving me permission to sit in the pit. Uh, so that's just my journey into the dark. Uh, I th- I'm in a better place, no doubt. Uh, but I still, I don't know that I'm outside that tomb. I think I can see, okay, Jesus, I see there's a light on the other side, and I'm going to start going to that. I don't know that I'm out of it, and maybe I don't ever get out of it. I don't know. You know it's been five years since that experience, and I've been recently telling myself, hey, if this was going to change, it probably would have changed by now. And so you need to just come to God and just wrestle with him with the reality. This just might be something. This might be the limp. Uh, this might be the thorn in the flesh. And these days I've just been getting used to the fact that the limp of Jacob, the thorn in Paul's flesh, and my own woundedness, and then something about the fact that Jesus still has scars in his hands. There's a fellowship there. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, but in that kind of limping weakness to say, this is where I can meet Jesus, right? It's, it's right here. So that's my journey into the dark. I want to keep us moving. Um, songs in the dark or singing in the dark. So let's turn at this point to Psalm 88. And Psalm 88, some of you may know, um, but it is probably one of the more famous psalms of lament. So I'll talk a little bit. Uh, seems like that you... You as a congregation are already pr- practicing this, but to talk a little bit about more about the nature of lament. Uh, but Psalm 88, uh, actually, let me just go ahead and read it to us. It's a little bit long. Uh, here's what it says. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. And these are the kinds of words that will come to life. I am overwhelmed with troubles. My life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. Oh, this is so true. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape, and my eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me? 
and hide your face from me. From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken me, taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And the psalm ends there. And well, j- so just think about that. If you're a poet, you're a songwriter, you're an artist, and you're constructing this poem, nothing's, nothing's put in there by mistake. There is a particular kind of artistic and emotional discipline to say this psalm must end with the words, darkness is my closest friend. That there's an intentionality to that. And again, just to remind you, this wasn't just the private prayer book of Israel. This was the worship song book of Israel. And so Israel would get together for Sunday worship, and there would be times of celebration, and they would sing this song. And the last line of the song, there's no more refrain, there's no more bridge, there's nothing. And the last line of the song is, darkness is my closest friend. Let's pray. But for me to come across this psalm and to see it end like that again gave me this permission to say, I can end my prayer with darkness as my closest friend, Lord. I can come. Did you hear some of the anger in this psalmist's voice? Did you hear the moments where he sounded hopeless and in despair? Did you hear all those things? And this is God's word teaching us how to pray. This were the psalms of lament that really began to transform me. So just really quick, just to do a little teaching on the nature of lament. Um, The person who taught me most about this prayer of lament uh, is a Ugandan scholar named Emmanuel Katongole. And he's a Catholic priest. Uh, His father was Tutsi and his mother was Hutu. So ethnically he was Rwandan, but he grew up in Uganda. Uh, and as you know a little bit about the Rwandan genocide, it was the Tutsi and the Hutu basically slaughtering each other. Rwanda at the time was the most Christianized nation in Africa. I uh, had the most churches. A lot of these murders uh, happened in churches where these men and women worshipped next to one another. Uh, and Emmanuel Kantangli did a lot of work post that Rwandan genocide in the work of reconciliation. So Desmond Tutu was part of that, and uh, Emmanuel Kantangli was part of that. And in a book that he wrote... Uh, and he, there's a chapter on that in Lament. He highlights uh, this passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, 2.18. So this is a Christmas text where it's a slaughter of the innocents. Herod has killed all the boys under two years old because he's trying to kill the baby boy Jesus. And in the midst of that, uh, the gospel writer Matthew quotes Jeremiah the prophet. And the quote in Matthew 2.18 is, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Katangale uh, points out how Rachel is lifted up here as righteous because she refuses to be comforted. Because she refuses to be comforted. Because she looks at this uh, terrible tragedy 
And she looks at that and says, it is too easy to move on and simply throw kind of Christian platitudes at this particular suffering. And so she's lifted up as righteous because she refuses to be comforted. And Emmanuel Cantangli then writes this. He says, the first language of the church in a deeply broken world is not strategy, it's prayer. We are called to see and encounter the rupture of this world so truthfully that we're literally slowed down. We're called to a space where any explanation or action is too easy, too fast, too shallow. A space where the right response can only be a desperate cry directed to God. We are called to learn again the anguished cry of lament. Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, who's another scholar who used to teach at Yale, he would say that lament is not a prayer about suffering. It's not a prayer that includes suffering. It's not a prayer that's talking about suffering. He would say lament is the prayer that gives voice to our suffering. That lament is how we give language to the suffering that we're experiencing. And in the West in particular, we have no theological categories to deal with this. That ours is a culture of optimism, ours is a culture of uh, 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 do-it-yourselfism, ours is a culture of um, happiness. That the West, as a culture, gives us no resources, no resources. And so when something like this happens in the world or happens in our life, it shatters us because we're, our lives and our identities are so fragile, kind of embedded in this culture of optimism and happiness. And so Katangale in his book goes on to say, here's what lament does, and he points out three things. He says, lament as a spiritual discipline. It's a discipline to practice lament. He says, first, lament is a prayer that refuses speed. Uh, So it's a spirituality that slows us down, that won't allow us to zoom past to quick fixes, Uh, won't allow us to zoom past to get to quick blame, as Duke was saying earlier. It's a lament is a prayer that refuses speed. But he says, secondly, lament is also a prayer that refuses distance. It refuses to walk by on the other side of the street. Uh, Lament is a prayer that causes us, that forces us to sit down and look at human suffering kind of face to face. It's a spirituality that won't allow us to avoid or dodge things just because we can say, well, that happened over there. Uh, But then he also says, thirdly, lament is a prayer that refuses innocence, that refuses to say, well, all that suffering over there is happening because of those bad people over there. But lament says, Lord, this is our problem. This is our suffering. And so lament is a spiritual discipline that refuses speed, refuses distance, refuses innocence. And American culture is all about speed and distance and innocence, isn't it? So Katangale cries out, and here's where I think why we so desperately need the global church. He cries out and said, what the church needs today is needs to recover spirituality of lament. Now, Katangale is talking about, of course, ruptures in the world. And the prayer that we prayed earlier today is a perfect example of that, where we refuse to just zoom by things. But what I want to suggest is that until we learn to pay pay attention to the suffering within us, we won't be able to engage redemptively with the suffering in the world outside of us. 
that there is a direct, direct link there. And that has certainly been the case in my own experience, that unless we're paying attention to the suffering within us, we cannot engage redemptively with the suffering in the world outside of us. And so to look within, to seek God for the, the healing and to seek to meet God in this darkness is not an inward spirituality. That the only way to be engaging redemptively outward in a world of brokenness and woundedness and hurt is for us to be taking our wounds to Jesus so that we can offer to the world the Jesus that has healed us. Have you met Jesus in the dark? Have you met him in the pit? Have you met him precisely at the point of your deepest wounds and suffering? So the book of Psalms has 150 psalms in it. Depending on how you count these, one scholar says that of the 150 psalms, 75 are some form of praise or thanksgiving. This person would say about 10 of them are psalms of instruction, kind of like the Proverbs. 65 of them are lament. So 75 praise, 10 of instruction, 65 of lament. There are almost as many psalms of lament as there are psalms of praise. If we were to dissect our songbooks today, a hundred psalms of praise, maybe one psalm of lament, maybe a hundred psalms about how great I am, (laughs) how much Jesus should love me. But this, this category of lament is something that we've lost. And I think our souls are dying because of it. And I think the world is dying because the church has lost this prayer. So that's that disorientation. And that's finding a song at the bottom of the pit. And it's finding in the history of God's people a fellowship in the midst of that suffering. But how do we bump into Jesus in the dark? Uh, how do we begin to do that? So if you look at Psalm 88, I just want to pull out a couple of things really quickly. Uh, first thing that is obvious, Psalm 88 shows us that we need to be creating space for lament, both in our personal spirituality and also in our public worship. We need to be creating that space for lament, and we need to be helping one another do it, giving each other space for lament. Uh, second thing that you notice from Psalm 88, especially verses 1 through 5, if you look at it closely, these are unfiltered cries to God. So these are raw uncensored, crying out to God. And it's not just complaining per se, because complaining means that there is no answer. But lament is to take these complaints to God and say, you alone are the answer. Okay, so it's this unfiltered, uncensored, raw cry to God. So all those emotions. Third thing that we see is that we need to begin to see that in Psalm 88, the psalmist sees God as being present in his disorientation. Did you notice that? He says, you're the one who put me here. It was your, it's your wrath. You took my friends away. You see, it's too easy to say, God, you were gone, and all this bad stuff happened. But the psalmist doesn't allow this. He says, you're the one who did this. And the reason he does that is because if you're the one who did this, then maybe there's a good reason. But if you're not the one who did this, then there is no hope. Right, to see God as being present in that disorientation. And the fourth and lastly is to refuse to be comforted by superficial resolution. 
Okay, so that's what we're seeing in Psalm 88. But here's what will happen to you. If you begin to pray the Psalms, and if you begin to pray the laments in particular, what happened to me is something that I hope will happen to you, and it's this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a German pastor, he was executed by in Nazi Germany for his attempts to assassinate uh, uh, Adolf Hitler. In his book, Life Together, he writes this. I'm going to read the entire section to you. It might not be entirely clear what he's saying, but I'll try to clarify what he's saying. But here's what he says. He says, he's talking about when you are using the Psalms as your prayer book, when you're praying the Psalms. And he says, as you pray the Psalms, soon you come upon passages that you feel like you cannot utter as your own personal petitions. Like, for example, the Psalms of Innocence that says, I've been righteous, I've done all the right things. Uh, The bitter Psalms calling for divine judgment, destroy my enemies. But this difficulty, when you find that you can't pray the Psalms, is precisely where we get our first glimpse of the secret power of the Psalter. A Psalm that we cannot utter as a prayer. A Psalm that makes us falter and horrifies us is a hint that here someone else is praying, not us. That the one who is here protesting his innocence, who is invoking God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who is praying here. Only in Christ does the whole Psalter become a reality, a whole which the individual can never fully comprehend and call his own. Do you hear what he's saying there? That as you read through the Psalms, you come across these Psalms, you say, I can't say that I've been perfectly righteous. I can't say that my enemies have pursued me to death. I can't say in good conscience, God, destroy these wicked people. I, 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 I can't say those things. And Bonhoeffer is essentially saying, is there one per- there's one person in the history of the universe who could say all of those things. And it was Jesus Christ. And now when you think about that, if you read Psalm 88, and you read this as the prayer of Jesus on the cross, you will meet Jesus in your suffering in a life-transforming way. Because look closely real quick. Verses, uh, I think it's 10, 11, and 12. These are questions that the psalmist is asking that are written in anger. The clear answer to these questions in the psalmist's mind is no. Okay? Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? And in Jesus Christ, the answer to every single one of those questions is yes. God has shown his greatest wonder to the dead. The dead spirits have raised up to praise you. Your love is declared precisely in the grave. Your faithfulness is shown precisely in destruction. Your wonders are known exactly in the place of darkness. Your righteous deeds are shined forth most brightly in that land of oblivion. You see what Jesus has done? 
he has taken verses 10, 11, and 12 and utterly and completely transformed them. Why? Because we serve a God who raises the dead. We serve a God who walked into the grave, who left the life of heaven, left that place of perfect orientation, walked into the grave of utter disorientation, so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Alone in the dark. And then he bursts out the other side with resurrection in his wings. And if that's the God that we serve, then that moment when we have to untie the rope is the moment when Jesus is asking us to meet him most personally, most powerfully, most profoundly. But we need to see this Jesus if we're going to untie that rope. That place of disorientation is the place of transformation. That place of Jacob wrestling in darkness alone with God, gasping for breath, exerting every ounce of his energy, that place of his woundedness where he walks away with a limp is a place of encounter with God. And I think for Christians in America, we, for, we don't know what to do with that. <laughs> we run away from that in terror when Jesus is saying, come, come and meet me here. Let me close with just one other story. Uh, and hopefully I can hold it together telling this story. Uh, but this is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon that he called, Why Jesus Called a Man a Fool. And he uh, is describing in the midst of his pit. For him, it was a kitchen table uh, where he met Jesus uh, in the midst of his greatest fear during the civil rights movement. He said, that morning I discovered that religion had to become real to me and I had to know God for myself and I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now, I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage and I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak, losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. He had just received a... a bomb threat in his home uh, that threatened the life of his two daughters. And he goes on and he says this, and it seemed to me at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And then he says, and I tell you, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still the fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me alone. Amen. Jacob's limp, Paul's thorn, Dr. King's kitchen table. The scars of our Savior as he sits by the right hand of the Father in heaven. And whatever your wounds are, there's a fellowship there. But only if we can come to a point where we embrace that disorientation and trust that God will meet you there. Let me pray for us.
Actually, before I do that, can I just give you maybe a minute or two uh, just to reflect? What, where is God leading you in prayer right now? Uh, maybe there was some part of my story or something else you heard this evening that it just resonates you with you, maybe even in a surprising way. I would just take a minute right now and we'll do it in silence and just bring it to God. And maybe ask yourself, ask God, Lord, are you trying to meet me here? And I have, have I been running the other way? Okay, let's take a minute to do that and then I'll close this in prayer. before I close, can I just read Psalm 88 to you again? And as you sit there, would you hear this as the prayer of Jesus uh, in his suffering, uh, in his love for you? This is Psalm 88, the prayer of Jesus. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles. And my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do the spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Are your righteous deeds known in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Lord, if the God that we worship can pray this prayer, then surely we can pray it too. And we can have the promise that you're going to meet us there. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see the nearness of you in all that we are. And that your nearness and your love and your strength would give us the freedom and the hope and the joy and the courage to be able to look into the darkest parts and the deepest wounds. To not be terrified because we know 
that there is a Savior who will meet us there, who wants to heal us with his grace. So Lord, help us, Father, in times of disorientation and times where we feel utterly lost to wait and to trust, O Lord, that in your time and in your way and in your wisdom, you'll meet with us and you'll heal us. And it's not going to be what we want. And it's not going to be as fast as we want. And it's not going to be as perfect as we want. But it's the right way because it's your way. And so, Lord, meet with us, Lord God, so that we might offer a transforming hope to a world that is ruptured and broken because we know the healing power of this God. And so help us, Lord, to meet with you, Jesus, tonight in new and surprising ways because of Psalm 88 and the ways that you're teaching us to pray. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.